Um, let us begin with a prayer. How about that? Let's pray together. Dear Lord in heaven, we ask you, as we do every time we talk to you, to be with us. Uh, we ask you to join us here in this place right now. We trust that you keep your promises and that you are here with us. I ask you that my words would be your words, that all of our thoughts would be your thoughts, and that you would speak to us in this time. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll begin by telling you a story. I was, I think as a lot of, oh, you know what, I'll start by telling you something about myself. How about that? Um, I am Nick Lannon. I am an Episcopal clergyman, as John Zoll calls us. I'm, it doesn't sound anywhere near as cool when I say it as it does when John Zoll has it, but I swear we're the same thing, he and I. Um, I'm actually not in a church right now. I have served um, churches for the last seven or so years, um, but now I'm uh, the editor-in-chief of a non-parochial ministry called called Liberate. Uh, you can find us on the web at liberate.org. Uh, we seek to connect God's inexhaustible grace to an exhausted world. So that's what we're about. Um, I won't say anything more about that. Um, before I was an Episcopal clergyman, I was an Episcopal youth minister, which I think is a common story um, for us ordained folk. They often they often try to um, trick us into serving the youth first. If we want to be ordained, they say, you've got to spend some time in the youth group. So I did that for a while. And I remember trying to sort of think of something to share with the youth um, each week. And one of these, these instances really sticks in my brain because of the juxtaposition between how awesome I thought it was then and how awful I think it was now. So I'd like to read you a story that Jesus told in uh, Matthew chapter 22, beginning in verse 1. You will have heard all of the stories that we are going to look at during our hour together many times. Um, perhaps sometimes you will have wondered, what was Jesus talking about? And hopefully you will already know everything that I'm going to say, because hopefully I'm just going to be sharing the good news with you um, this afternoon, we're going to be sharing it with each other. But my hope is that we can um, be encouraged once again by um, finding the good news in these stories of Jesus where it's not always obvious. So this is a story, Matthew chapter 22, beginning in verse 1. Again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son." And sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention, and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry. He sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads 
and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. And if Jesus stopped there, we'd have no problem. But, Jesus continues, When the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment, no wedding robe. He said to him, Friend, how did you get in here with no wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. The gospel of the Lord. (laughs) So I brought this teaching to my youth group, excited, because I thought this is what Christianity is all about. This is what the Christian life really is about. See, the gospel is for the people who aren't invited to the party, right? The invited guests don't want to come, and so the invitation is open. Literally, thrown open to the streets. It specifically says, the wedding hall was filled with guests, both bad and good. This is the epitome of the good news. Bad and good in the feast. But... Once you're in, then the Christian life starts. You can't just stay in the clothes that you got into the feast in. Jesus loves too much. Loves you too much to leave you in those clothes, right? You've got to then start becoming the kind of person for whom such an invitation isn't so ridiculous. The king sees you, and if you're still wearing the shabby outfit that you got in on, he's going to say, what have you been doing? He probably has like a coat room. Full of wedding robes that if you had just taken the initiative to go and put on, everything would be okay. When you get to the party, when you become a Christian, you can't just stay the person you were before. You have to change into a wedding robe, a robe worthy of the invitation you've been given. Man, I thought that was awesome. And I think the kids were sort of with it too because that sort of gives you... Something to do, but this this is our going to be sort of our interpretive rule of thumb for the afternoon. Um, I'm going to suggest to you that parables are not meant to be interpreted. I'm going to suggest to you that parables are meant to interpret you. We like to think, I think, of these parables as sort of, and I'm, I'm stealing this this illustration whole hog from a friend of mine. Um, John O'Leinbaugh, who was here earlier and will be here again later, he says that we think of Scripture as the frog that you were given in junior high biology class to, to open up, investigate, dissect, figure out what's connected to what, what does what, how it works. But the Bible is not the frog. You are the frog. We do not dissect Scripture. Scripture dissects us. Listen to Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul, of spirit, of joints, and of marrow. I mean, he's talking about dissection. (laughs) Discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. You and I are the biology frog. Scripture dissects us 
not the other way around. It's God's word that is the actor. It is we who lie pinned to the table. This is getting grisly. But this will be our interpretive principle moving forward as we start to look at these stories of Jesus. We are the frog getting dissected. So what we'll do is we'll sort of lock into this interpretive principle with one non-parable to sort of lock it in as a scriptural principle. And then um, my hope in our time is to talk about a couple of parables that sound terrible and to see if we can find some good news in them by doing this reversal, by taking ourselves from the role of the scientist to the frog, and scripture from the role of the frog to the scientist. So I want to talk for just a second and sort of an introduction about Hosea. The whole book of Hosea. We're going to do the whole book of Hosea in about two minutes. Hosea is a parable. It's not a parable, it's history, but it's a parable. And it's intended to show the nation of Israel who are reading the story who they are. What happens is that the Lord comes to Hosea right at the beginning of the book, and the Lord says to Hosea, Go, take yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So Hosea went and took Gomer, and she conceived and bore him a son. And they call this first son Jezreel. Um, for in just a little while, he says, I will punish the house of Jehu. She has another son, and the Lord tells Hosea to call this child no mercy. For he says, I will have no mercy on the house of Israel. They have a third child, and the Lord says to call him not my people. For you, he says, are not my people. But later in Hosea, as the story continues, this is what the Lord says. In that day I will answer. I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth. And the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, and the oil. And they shall answer Jezreel, and I will show so her for myself in the land. And then he says these incredible words. I will have mercy on no mercy, the son, I mean the daughter. I will say to not my people, the son, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. I will have mercy on no mercy. I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. Our traditional stance toward parables is to read them to figure out what we should do. But I think that this Hosea story helps us to understand that parables are not about what we should do, but are about who we are. Parables are the dissecting knife, that living and active word of God that cuts between the bone and the marrow. I will say to not my people, you are my people. This is an incredibly profound sentence, and it's it's about what kind of activity God is always up to in Scripture, right? He says, uh, St. Paul says, I should say, in Romans 4, that this kind of activity is what God does. He gives life to the dead and calls into existence those things which do not exist. This is God's work, and this is what the living and active work of Scripture proclaims to us. I will say to not my people, You are my people. I call into being 
things that do not even exist. And what I was saying upstairs about stories, the reason Jesus uses parables is that when we are confronted with something like, call your firstborn Jezreel, but call your secondborn no mercy. And call your thirdborn not my people. When we are confronted by things such as this, we reject them because they're awful. When we are confronted by stories like the one I told from Matthew 22 about uh, the weeping and the gnashing of teeth, the person who didn't get into the right, the right wedding robe, we reject them because they're awful. Stories that come at us, well, things that come at us head on are easy to reject. We just slide them away. And so scripture, this living and active word of God, uses these stories, these parables, to come at us from a side entrance. Like the story of David and Nathan. You've all heard this one too. David likes the looks of Bathsheba, his next door neighbor. And so he has her husband killed and marries her and um, feels sort of great about the whole thing, actually, um, until this prophet arrives, Nathan, and rather than coming to the king and saying, hey, you blew this one, because David could have him killed, he could ignore him, he could do any number of things, what Nathan decides to do is to tell, Nate, to tell David a story. And he tells him a story about a man who has... Lots of sheep, and he has a guest come, and he doesn't really want to kill one of his own sheep, so he steals a sheep from his neighbor who only has the one, slaughters that sheep for his guest. And David, of course, gets all up in arms and says, "Who? tell me the name of this man, I'm going to kill him. I'm going to set this thing right. And of course, Nathan's famous words are, you are the man. And David is hit. From the side door. All of a sudden he realizes of course. That what we knew all along. That the story was about him. And he says. I am a sinner. How can I get out of this? And we get the gospel in that story too. When Nathan says. Your sins will not be counted against you. There are other things that happen of course. But this is what parables do. This is what stories do. They are rejectable when they come at us on the face, but they sneak around to a side door and they get us. So let's go back to that wedding robe parable that I was so excited to give to my youth group because I really thought it was going to inspire them, you know, to get their garments in order, you know, to to get their lives shaped up. But let's think about what the wedding robe actually means when the prophet Samuel's parents make the annual sacrifice, they make Samuel a special robe to wear for the occasion. A robe that you and I think of is something that we wear after a shower or on vacation at the spa, right? When I'm in an Episcopal church on a Sunday morning, I still wear a robe to this day. It has, a, it has much more of a meaning than the way that we normally think of a robe. Today, they go with slippers Then they went with sacrifice. Samuel wears a robe when an animal is slaughtered to make the annual sacrifice to God. Priests wore robes 
when they made sacrifices on behalf of the people. Even Joseph's robe of many colors ended up drenched in blood as his brothers pretended that he'd been murdered. This sort of connection between robes and blood would have been very clear to the people Jesus was speaking to when he told this story about the wedding robe. And the imagery is perhaps most clearly stated in Revelation 19, when John says, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. And here's the good part. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood. And his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has this name written. King of kings and Lord of lords. This Advancing Jesus Christ is dressed in a robe dipped in blood. This passage that describes the coming word of Christ calls him the word of God. His armies are dressed in fine linen, white and clean, but not him. He's dressed in a robe dipped in blood. Of course, the blood is his own. This association, again, with robes and blood would have been well known to those who were listening to Jesus And definitely would have been known to the readers of Matthew's gospel. And they would have been able to take that connection one step further. In the same way that we can. The wedding robe in the parable is nothing other than the very blood of Jesus Christ. So the point of the parable is actually a simple one. To be at the party, you've got to be wearing a wedding robe. There are sort of two points to this story, but they're separate. They're not the A and B story that I talked to my youth group about. Getting in, all by grace, good and bad, everybody, the invitation is thrown open to the streets. But once you're in, you better put that wedding robe on or you might get gnashing of teeth, worm that never dies. <laughs> to be in the kingdom of heaven, the second part of the story says, you've got to be covered by the blood of Christ. And in Galatians, St. Paul says, For all of you who are reborn into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. So in the blood of Christ alone, it is the blood of Christ alone that affords us entrance into the wedding feast of the kingdom of heaven. We are clothed in Christ and can never be thrown out. The person who came in off the street, uninvited at first, but invited at the last has, in fact, put on the wedding robe, that robe dipped in blood of Jesus Christ. Whatever goes on under the robe is old news, that rumpled interior. It might still go on, it might not, but the robe, Christ's blood shed for you and for me, is enough. So our, our interpretive framework, I hope, sort of helps us get to this point with a parable such as this. One of the reasons that I titled this session 
as I did was, that's sort of how I always start, right? It can't mean that. I, I read something and I say, well, that can't be right. So let's think about how we might make it right. I mean, we, um, one of the great sort of interpretive principles that I was taught in school was to interpret the difficult stuff using the easy stuff. And that's not to say the hard stuff to understand by the easy stuff to understand, although that works too. It's the stuff that makes you cringe by the stuff that makes you smile. Interpret the stuff that you fear is going to send you to hell by the stuff that you know is ushering you into heaven. Use the gospel, the good news that is promised to us on every page of the Bible to understand the things here and there that you don't understand. So another parable, as we sort of, uh, my plan, my tentative plan is to look at maybe one or two other ones just sort of as specific examples. And I'm, put, I'm considering risking letting you ask questions. Um, <laughs> The problem is that I am not a New Testament scholar, and there are probably parables that I didn't consider in my preparation for this talk that I don't know what they mean. And I would rather you not know that that's true. Um, So we'll see sort of how it goes. Um, But the next um, story of Jesus sort of jumped out to me when I was thinking about what parables were uh, terrible. The terrible parables of Christ. See, I like to rhyme too, terrible parables. Um, Is the parable of the ten virgins in Matthew 25. The story that Jesus tells that the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet a bridegroom. Five were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. The wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. And all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. The wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. While they were going to buy, The bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast. The door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Therefore, watch, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Jesus has a thing for these awful last lines. (laughs) Many are called. But few are chosen. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. This parable seems to be an ode to Boy Scouts. Right? Be prepared. As James Brown says in the Blues Blues Brothers, don't be lost when the time comes. For the day of the Lord cometh as a thief in the night. I could do that for a whole sermon, right? It would probably be offensive. Um, But this parable seems to be sort of on the side of the like ultimate type A prepared people who usually come under the scornful eye of Jesus, right? The, the Pharisees are going to be the ones with the extra oil. Can you just hear the five prepared virgins say, oh, we'd love to help you out, but there's just not enough oil for both of us. We, we, right. We'd, bless your heart. Bless your heart. We'd love to help. We 
we'd love to help, but we just don't have enough. And Jesus says, Jesus seems to be implying that they get, they're the ones who get into the feast. It's the unprepared ones who get left out. How is this possible? It can't mean that. So let's, again, use this interpretive structure we have, this understanding that parables are not about what we are to do, but about who we are. Parables are about showing Israel that they're Gomer. Parables are about dissecting us rather than being dissected by us to try to understand what's going on in this parable of the ten virgins. I'll submit to you that what the parable of the ten virgins is about is not whether or not you came prepared with oil. This parable is about what happens when the bridegroom starts to return. The wise bridesmaids start to get everything ready. The foolish bridesmaids have to run out to the market to get some oil. Let's say hypothetically that this story is about Jesus and about Jesus coming back. (laughs) I'm glad I didn't have to ask you to laugh. Um, If someone came into this room right now, sort of running down that cool staircase with the rope handle and said, Jesus is coming back. He's on his way right now. Would you feel prepared? Would you be like, I was hoping it was going to be tonight. I feel like it's night down here. It's like 345. It's always night in Olmstead Hall. But if, if somebody came running into this room right now and said, Jesus is coming back, and we found it somehow possible to believe them, would you feel like a wise bridesmaid or a foolish one? Speak for yourself, but I would be freaking out. The thoughts that would be running through my mind would not be thoughts of joy at the coming of my Lord, but thoughts of panic at my unpreparedness. Oh no, I haven't had time to reconcile that broken relationship. Don't come now, Jesus, I'm still a failure at the office, still a poor provider for my family. It's like Tennessee Ernie Ford says, right? You load 16 tons, what do you get? Another day older, deeper in debt. St. Peter, don't call me, because I can't go. I owe my soul to the company store. This is our line. Don't call me now, I'm not ready. I haven't sort of fixed myself to be able to face my Lord with a smile. Don't call me now. This is how this parable dissects us. We are the unprepared bridesmaids. Remember, parables don't tell us what to do. Be prepared. They tell us who we are. Unprepared. We are the unprepared bridesmaids rushing out to try to make everything right as the bridegroom approaches. This parable shows us that our default setting is self-salvation. When we hear that the bridegroom is on his way, our first thought is, save ourselves. Get ourselves into a state of acceptability. Get that oil. The tendency towards self-salvation, which we all have, this need that we find within ourselves to make things right, is what Jesus is talking about in this parable. 
It's not about the forethought of the wise bridesmaids or even about the laissez-faire attitude of the foolish bridesmaids. What it's really about is how we act when we get caught out. Because that is the normative state of our lives. Caught out. Revealed. Shown to, for what we really are. This parable is about what happens when we're unprepared. But we know the gospel. There are only two little words required of the foolish bridesmaids. And they're actually the only two words that we ever need speak. Have mercy. Can you imagine if the bridegroom had arrived and the bridesmaids had simply said, Master, we love you. We waited for you. We're unprepared. We're foolish. We're sorry. This bridegroom, our bridegroom, Jesus Christ, the righteous, has a ready answer for that. And he has it all throughout Scripture. He said it to the thief on the cross. Truly, I tell you, today, you will be with me in paradise. Come in to the party. I forgive you. Not... I wish you'd gotten more oil. I wish you were more prepared. Our cry should not be, Oh my God, I've got to become acceptable. Our cry is, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. But when the bridegroom arrives, the foolish bridesmaids aren't even there. They've left. And this is their true foolishness. They don't, they count only on their ability to save themselves, to find more oil in time, to get to a state that is acceptable for the wedding feast. And so they're not even there when the bridegroom arrives. They didn't trust in the goodness of the bridegroom. They're so worried about their unpreparedness and so busy trying to save themselves that they miss the party entirely. Um, time is it? Okay. How about the Good Samaritan? Thanks for the thumbs up, by the way. You can do that every three or four minutes. Good Samaritan. Classic, right? This is the one that's sort of often um, thrown at us proclaimers of the gospel as sort of proof that we're wrong, right? We, we, all, this one we really know, right? We have the man lying in the ditch. He's been mugged. You know, I was once mugged at gunpoint. I'll tell you about that later. Um, Now I'm thinking about that. (laughs) So two men, the priest and the Levite, walk on the other side of the street. They don't help. And the Samaritan, who oughtn't be helping this man, helps him. And Jesus tells the person who asked him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He says, go and do likewise. And so we say, ha ha. Jesus leaves him with an imperative. Jesus tells him what to do. And it's true, Jesus does, but let's once again apply our our interpretive matrix. That sounds super fancy, interpretive matrix. Um, You can tell everyone that I was, you know, intelligent, um, well-groomed, and and that I use the word interpretive matrix, the phrase interpretive matrix. Um, But remember what the man who talked to Jesus in the first place says, we're told that he 
ask this question of Jesus so that he could justify himself. Right? He's, in a sense, we might say, asking a vertical question rather than a horizontal one. He doesn't say, Jesus, what should I do um, if I find somebody lying in the gutter? How should I care for my fellow man? He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Because we're told he was seeking to justify himself. And Jesus says, you know, love the Lord your God, love your neighbor. He says, and, and who is my neighbor? Sort of hoping that Jesus would give him a class of humanity that he was already loving. And Jesus tells this story of the Samaritan in this Context: How shall I justify myself? And so we get the parable that shows us just how good Samaritan-like we are not. Right? Rather than saying, you ought to be like the good Samaritan, we read the story and say, gosh, I'm a little bit more like the priest and the Levite than the Samaritan here. And really, the, um, the beauty of this particular story is that this understanding, this realization that we are the priest, that we are the Levite, hurts so much that we become the man lying in the ditch. The parable itself dissects us to a point of beatenness. I know that's not really a word, but we, we crumple in light of our own description. The, the uh, junior high scientist has cut too much. We, we are too aware of our selfishness, our self-absorption. And we realize that we feel like who we were always meant to identify with in the parable. The man lying by the side of the road. The good, and um, so, once again, parables do not tell us what to do. E.g., be like the Good Samaritan. Parables tell us who we are, the man lying in the ditch. It is, in fact, Jesus Christ himself who is the Good Samaritan. You probably already knew that. Everybody's nodding their heads. Nobody's making notes in chalk like you ought to be. Um, Jesus crosses the street from righteousness to sinfulness, from health to disease. To come to us when we are crumpled. Not asking us to climb some ladder up to him. But descending to us when we are crumpled at the bottom. Having fallen off our struggle to climb. Once again we find ourselves dissected by a text. By a story that Jesus tells. Not giving us something to do. Even though Jesus definitely does say. Go and do likewise. But his words, go and do likewise, are like the club that is used to beat the man and leave him lying helpless. And Jesus himself is the Good Samaritan crossing that street to be there, to um, not only put the man in the inn, right, sort of saving him, but then leaving that deposit for any future medical needs the man has. The Samaritan says, all of that too, charge to me. So we are saved by Christ and our ongoing needs are also taken up in him. So I sort of said 
We do have time left, unfortunately. I've sort of said what I planned to say, what I wanted to say, that parables, these terrible parables of Christ, are terrible on their face because of our natural inclination to read them with an eye toward what we can do. Our natural stance to be like the foolish virgins who, when they hear the bridegroom is on his way, run out and try to save themselves. We read the parables with those same eyes. What can I do to justify myself? What can I do to be prepared? How can I be acceptable? And when we read the parables through those eyes, they are indeed terrible. Because we find ourselves outside the wedding feast where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. We find ourselves beaten and bloodied on the curb. We find ourselves pounding on the door saying, Lord, Lord, let us in and only hearing, I never knew you. When we can find ourselves described rather than cajoled by the text, we can see ourselves as in need and provided for. We can understand that even in these parables, we are offered good news when we find ourselves described by them rather than, in, I don't want to say the word encouraged because we are encouraged, but prodded. Parables do not prod, they describe. And when we find ourselves described like the woman at the well in John chapter 4, She found herself so profoundly described by Jesus when he said, you're right, you don't have a husband. You've had five husbands, and the man you're with now is not your husband. She goes back to the town and says, what? Come and meet a man who told me everything I ever did. The parables tell us everything we ever did. It's not a pretty story. That's why, like Nathan, they have to come in a side door. But when we open ourselves a little bit because we're reading a story and we don't think it's about us, we can have our eyes opened like David has his eyes opened. And we can say like he did, oh my God, I am the sinner. I am the foolish bridesmaid. I am the man lying in the ditch. I am the man without the wedding robe. What's going to happen to me? And into that fear, into that worry, into that cry comes God's gospel. His promise that he is in fact himself the wedding robe. His blood clothes us. He is in fact himself the good Samaritan. He crosses the street to us. He is himself, in fact, the forgiving bridegroom who says, I love you. Come into the party. So now I'm going to do the risky thing. We have a few minutes left. I think that we sort of, my hope anyway, is that we sort of have an interpretive matrix now, a strategy for dealing with parables that seem terrible on their face, but might in fact have good news coming in the side door Are there parables or other things that, um, without my promising that I have the answer, I will not 
do that. I will pretend that I have the answer. I'm just <laughs> admitting that up front. I'm going to spend at least a couple seconds trying to come up with an answer before I finally have to admit that I don't have one. But I thought that now that we have our sort of shared way of reading, maybe if there were questions about other things, we could discuss them as a group. If that was something that you wanted to do, we do have a few minutes left. So I'm, I'm going to sort of risk throwing things open to the floor and do that now. You helped me uh, understand. Yes. Yeah, there you go. Um, one parable, the, the, I've gone to Redeemer Presbyterian for a while. If you know anything about Redeemer, you know that Tim Keller. Yeah, you're a cheater. The, the parable <laughs> of the prodigal yeah. son. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or as he said, the two sons. Mm-hmm. And but that, that's a parable that's very clear about what you're saying. They reveal who we are. We are both the elder brother and the younger brother. Although I did a terrible youth group message about that one, too, just, <laughs> just for the record. <laughs> Yeah. And then I just look for grace to, to save me from being both the elder brother and the younger brother. The thing about the parable of the prodigal son that always, even until actually really recently, rubbed me the wrong way was the whole idea that, that the father was sort of, he was sure he was sort of waiting and looking and ready to run and that's great, but he was still at home, right? Like that, that son had to come to his senses and start going home. You know, like we still, we still have that thing that we had to do to sort of wake up and start heading home. We have to make that 180-degree return, right? But the thing that I realized about that particular parable is that it's actually the third parable of that set of three, right? The lost sheep, the lost coin, and the prodigal son. And the first two have made the passivity point already, right? Like the coin, it's lying on the floor. It's not coming back. The woman has to clean the house and search diligently until she finds it. The sheep is actively going away, right? And it's also a sheep. It's a pretty passive metaphor there. So it's like those points are made when we get to the parable of the prodigal son. The son is there to show us that there's no place too far, Right? The lost coin shows us that there's no amount of searching that is too much. The lost sheep is that there's no amount of good people that won't be left to find us. And the sun is there's no point at which we can't be welcomed home. Well, the, one of the big lessons I take out of that parable also is that the son, the younger son, the classic sinner who you know, went away to Vegas and blew the family fortune, um, you know, at the end of the story, he is in... He's in the party, yeah. And the, the, the elder son followed all the rules and did everything right. Um, he's outside the feast, and he's not inside. So it's kind of a cliffhanger there. We don't know what <laughs> but my favorite thing about Christians is that we always say, well, I, I identify more with the elder son, right? Because really my, my main problem is I'm a little self-righteous. And, you know, I, I followed all the rules. It's just that I tend to look down on the, you know, the real sinners. Um, I'm just a perfectionist, right? That's my classic, like, you know when you apply for a job and they ask you for weaknesses? Perfectionism. I just can't trust anybody else to do a job that I know I can do so well myself. As soon as we start thinking about ourselves as just the elder son, that's when we're eating the pods with the pigs. As soon as we start thinking that our main problem is just a touch of self-righteousness, 
that's when the Lord usually snaps open our eyes and we realize that we're eating with the pigs. Anyone else? Yeah, uh, I don't know who's first. I, apparently Chris is first. Okay. Um, I, I get hung up on the, uh, the, the really short piece that Jesus says where he says, you know, he, he asked his two, or his father tells his two sons to do something, and the uh, one son says, yeah, yeah. yeah, I'll do that right away, and doesn't do it. And the other one says, yeah, I don't think I want to do that, and then goes, thinks better but later and does it anyway. Uh-huh. Which of the sons is the one that you know, the father really yeah. <laughs> loves or whatever? I've always been kind of. I've always tossed around. And yeah. Lots of different options, but I haven't settled on anything. The way that I, um, I, don't, I don't know if I should be like repeating the, the question for this all important recording, but um, <laughs> I'll just sort of imply the, the way that I've always thought about the parable of the two sons um, one who does the work of his father after saying no, and the other one who says yes and then does not do anything. I mean, the first thing I always. Think about is in that time, like saying no to your father was like the thing that you didn't do. Like that was like the unforgivable sin. Like even if you weren't going to do the thing, just say yes to your dad. Like whatever else happens, eh, but say yes to your dad. And I think what the parable is about there is that what's important is the change of heart. Right? It's, it's better to be honest about yourself. Admit what we would call your sin, your, your lack of desire to do what your father is asking of you. Be honest about that and say, I don't want to do that. And then to do something sort of more ethically honest, sort of actually from the heart. When your heart changes, then go to work. But the other one, this whole like says yes and then he doesn't go. Like he, he was clearly never that into it. He actually didn't want to go, and so his, his yes was a lie anyway. What, what the, um, sort of ethically speaking, I don't want to get into ethics, but um, the, the, the action that comes from your heart is the only ethical one, right? The one that you sort of help somebody out to be seen by someone else or to score some kind of points. That's not really worth anything. That has, in fact, no value or negative value in the eyes of Jesus. And so what's valuable is something that comes from your heart. And that second son who says no, then when he ultimately obeys, must have had that change of heart. I mean, that's how I've always thought of. Does anybody else have any insight into that particular story? Is that something that you've thought about as hard to understand? They all understand it fine, Chris. Yeah. I think that. To me, this is really like a wonderful way of looking around the parables for me. Let me let me attempt to say that it dissects us by showing us that we want to say no. That we we are the ones who, when somebody says. Do this. Our, uh, 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 often, our first reaction is, "No, I want to do what I want to do. I want to, you know, do this other thing. I want to just not do what you want to do." So, that's sort of like um, shining a light, if you will, on the the. Um, it's it's putting the scalpel between the marrow and the bone, or the can you go between the marrow and the bone? You can open the bone to see the marrow. I don't know what I'm talking about, but that's the, the 
dissection, sh- showing us the truth about ourselves that we want to say no. And it's, it's, I don't think it's telling us what to do because it seems to be on the side. Well, it's, it's, um, it's not saying just do the thing, whether you want to or not. It seems to be saying, if you don't want to do it, say that. And then, perhaps, your heart will change. And you can do it. It's certainly not um, you know, as cut and dried as maybe my other ones were. That's why I didn't make the talk. Um, <laughs> but, but that's sort of what I'm shooting at for that one, just sort of off the cuff. Thomas? Yeah, uh, yeah, thanks, Nick. You're, I mean, you're talking about think about how the parables sometimes do end up describing the disciples, mm-hmm. um, which is which is confirmation, I think, for, for what you're getting at. I mean, like when Jesus talks about why he tells parables in Mark four, so that people, you know, seeing see but don't don't see and don't understand. And right after that, he rebukes the disciples for not understanding, and throughout Mark, they fail to understand. Um, they even meet. You know, uh, the parable of the sower comes right after that. They are ones that kind of fall away from this persecution because they're afraid. And then with the parable of the, uh, the ten virgins who get drowsy and fall asleep, I just realized that the next chapter after that is in Gethsemane, where the disciples hmm. fall asleep and Jesus says to stay awake. So, uh, yeah, I mean, there's more of just a comment, but it, but it helped me remember how we actually see that happening in the story itself. We don't have to, uh, we're not out of line to say how does this describe me. It's actually describing the disciples right there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, right. Matt, sorry. In the, in the parable of the wedding feast, I'm probably still trying to dissect the problem myself. But, <laughs> so who got thrown out? And as I sit here and think about it, that was Jesus. He was the one without the wedding garment who got thrown out for us. Uh, but that might be trying to Sounds good, though. Yeah, I mean, there, there's definitely stories in which there's, I mean, there's sheep and goats, you know, like, who are the goats? I, I hope there are very few. Well, <laughs> and, and, and just, with these two questions, I mean, go to the denial of God, like, the saying, no, like, you know, I mean, as far as dissecting that one, but also looking at um, what really happened <laughs> to, you know, what we saw, uh, the kind of denial and then that. Oh, but I do, but I do, you know, yeah. that, is, that is sometimes what we do too. No, 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 I know. I find myself being much more the one that says, "Oh yeah, yeah I'll do that." Yeah. You know, I'll follow the Ten Commandments. I'll make sure I get a tenth of all I own. I'll make sure to keep the Sabbath day holy. You know, whatever it is. Yeah. Don't do anything. Right. Right. Like a good millennial that I am. Right. right. I love the poor and I care for them, but I don't do anything at all. <laughs> but if I'm asked on a survey, I will tell you that I absolutely care about serving. Yes. <laughs> and encourage others to do That's the same. Right. Yeah. So Any thoughts on the parable of the talents? Which one is that again? No, I'm just um, talents. The... That's it. Well, it's a great one because it, it lends itself to the natural way that we want to preach, like your, like the way we used to preach to kids in youth groups. Mm-hmm. Like that, it lends itself well to that because we. 
we get to say, look at the guy, only he was, you know, granted he was only given one talent, but like, you know, you've been given gifts, like use them for the Lord or else, kind of thing. And, you know, don't bury him or else, or else yeah. outer darkness for you. <laughs> like, that's what we're always motivating people with. Um, do you remember that one? Yeah. And you take it. Have you talked about this before? That's it. That to me is one of my favorites. That changed my understanding. Go of ahead, please. The parable, this idea of flipping the parables that you fit so well when I first heard somebody preach that in a different way than I've ever heard before. And that one was the, the guy at the end, you know, the first guy's called up and, oh, you've done such a great job, you've multiplied your talents. The second guy's called up, you've multiplied your talents, great job, you know, you're in. Third guy comes up and said, well, I knew you were a harsh master, mm-hmm. and so I went and hid my talent, I'm buried at it, here's your one talent back. And point that I was told from a gospel perspective about that, which just blew my mind, was the problem there is the guy is afraid of the master. He says very openly, I knew you were a hard guy. I'm going to justify myself in the fact that I'm just giving you back what's yours, so you keep what's yours and stay away from me and I'm fine. Uh, you know, don't, don't judge me or whatever. And the, the fact, the reason he's, the problem with the third guy is not that he didn't didn't make money for God. Well, and I don't think that the the master is not God. Like, I don't have the... But that's how it's preached. I don't have the text for that one in front of me, so don't hold me to this. But I don't think that's one where Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is life. I don't actually think that's the preface to that parable. But I think that even coming back to a little bit of what Matt was saying with the wedding feast, I think a lot of times we just assume when it says the kingdom of heaven is life, we assume that the Father is then God. Or whoever is... Whoever's the highest role. If, yeah. if the king is gone on the wedding feast, Jesus isn't present at all. Yeah. You know what I mean? And if we're taking the imagery of the Bible, the bridegroom is us, not the people attending the feast, you know? And so I think there's, there's, there's so many pieces to it that uh, like I wrestle with, mm-hmm. even just picking it apart. I mean, I think it's one of the things you kind of mentioned that's really helpful that I'm reminded of is that in the first century, people didn't take parables, like you said, in order to draw out the meaning so that we can teach the meaning to other people. They were okay and comfortable even just letting it be a parable, um, letting it be a story, letting it work on us in, in the many different levels and facets that it offers. Um, that if we end up with an answer on the other side, we probably need to read it again. <laughs> and they create relationship. If Jesus had just said it, you know, straight out, this is what I want to say to you, we would have said it conversationally. Uh, but the parables and the way he taught them, Move people into uh, his message and create a relationship. Good to go, Dave. Yeah, let's say a quick prayer before we go, and then we'll be gone. Let's pray. <coughs> Dear God, we know um, that we are um, imperfect and uh, terrible interpreters of your word. We ask that you would continue to use your word to interpret us, that you would continue to speak the two words to us that you always speak, that first word that we are in desperate need of a Savior, and that glorious second word that in your Son you have provided one for us. I pray for each one of us as we leave this place now that we would walk in your grace and in your peace and in your comfort until we come together again. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.